When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One note before we start the show. This conversation was recorded on September 8th, 2022, before the current protests across Iran. So we had to consider not airing this episode. But Mashe Voital said his views actually have not shifted at all. He says the protests could cause internal pressure on the government to do something to calm the people down. What the people want is a deal with the West. It should make them more flexible and sign a deal. Mashe Voital says these protests likely won't evolve into a revolution. He says if it ever did, it would turn Iran into a secular country and not a religious one, and join the Western world in becoming a secular nation. So with that said, this conversation is actually even more relevant than on the day we recorded it. Iran seemed very, very special, very unique, because it was a country that was closed for so many years, or decades actually. It missed out on so many growth opportunities that other emerging markets experienced, and it was suddenly opening up. The very good thing was also that there were no other foreign investors in the market. So there was a tremendous investment opportunity. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next big trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the next big trade. Thanks for joining us. This week, we are joined by Mache Voital, who is the founder and CIO of Antalon Capital, an investment management firm focused on frontier markets. Mache started his career as an equity analyst with Citigroup Investment Research. He's done stints with JP Morgan, uh, KS Asset Management, and also TFI, where he ran an absolute return portfolio before setting up Antelon. Hi, Mache. How's it going? Hey, I'm good. It's great to be here. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm just wondering how how badly did I mangle your name and how did I get your the name of your company right as well? Now the company is okay. The the name you have to work on it, but it's not that bad. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've been working on it all morning, but it's not going well, is it? Um, so my f- first stupid question, and I've got a lot of stupid questions, is where did the name come from for the company? I mean, not not for you. <laughs> <laughs> you would have to ask my parents, right, for the name. But anyway, the company. So the company is a, is an acronym. So Amtelon is an acronym for Amsterdam, Tehran, London. And these are the cities where we became operational on day one. And the company was specifically launched to take advantage of the opportunity uh, that we found in the Iranian stock market. So we operate in in Iran, as in we invest in Iran. Um, Our um, legal operations are in Amsterdam. Um, Well, I'm myself based in London mainly. Uh, that sounds cool. And it's, I agree, it's way better than Lonteam. I was working on the order for some time. <laughs> <laughs> There's a limited number of ways of organizing three syllables, right? But um, what made you decide to set up your own business and, and why this particular space? I got interested in, um, in Iran in 2016 when the original nuclear deal was, um, was implemented. And it was something new for me to focus on one country before, because before I was always running portfolios of global portfolios of equity, long, short portfolios mainly. So I was looking at many different markets across sectors. 
But Iran seemed very, very special, very unique, because it was a country that, you know, that was closed for so many years or decades, actually. It missed out on so many, you know, growth opportunities that other emerging markets experienced. And it was suddenly opening up. And um, I had to go there. I had to see it, um, talk to the people, understand, is it investable and so on. Um, and, you know, the best, the, the very good thing was also that there were no other foreign investors um, in the market. So there was a tremendous investment opportunity because we can talk about valuations and the growth perspective and so on. But also there were no funds um, that you could use to, to get exposure to this market. Um, and the big funds still were constrained. They couldn't access this market because of um, U.S. primary sanctions. Um, so so um, that's why. That's why Iran. I also saw a similarity between, you know, this transformational opportunity that was coming in Iran and other transformational opportunities, as in, uh, for example, Eastern Europe in the 90s. Obviously not the same, but similar dynamics. I'm Polish myself, and I remember, you know, the 90s in Poland, which which were chaotic. I mean, there were, you know, we got rid of some old institutions and there were no new institutions, but the pace of change was tremendous. I mean, the opportunities that were showing up there were, were amazing. I was unfortunately too young to do anything uh, meaningful that uh, in the 90s. But I, um, you know, one of the reasons why I really wanted to focus on Iran and be there early and, and take advantage of this um, opening up. So it's funny you say all this. My cousin... Uh, who is also was of is a dead person of Polish descent or were they of Polish descent? It's hard to say, right? But uh, unfortunately, he's passed now. But my cousin, he quit university in Belgium to go to Warsaw just after the Berlin Wall fell for exactly the same reason. So yeah, he did participate, and yes, he made what we we call a technical term in finance a shitload of money. By uh, by being there early, uh, the first three years I think he partied, um, as far as I can tell. But uh, after that, he set up a water cooler business in uh, in Warsaw and in Krakow, and then he set up a mineral water business, and then he set up a cable TV franchise partnering with Canal Plus, and so on and so forth. So if you've ever been to a Disney store in Warsaw, that's my cousin's fault. And right. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, he's gone now. But yes, you're absolutely right. If you're first into a market that's fully liberalizing, you will make a lot of money if you do it right. So I think you've already scooped a little bit, uh, scooped us a little bit on the what your next big trade. But why don't you run us past this investment thesis you have? Let's go into a little bit more detail. Yeah. So you know the the investment thesis is really was looking really good in 2016. Then we had change in the U.S. administration, change in the relations between the countries, and it went um, nowhere, basically. And, and it's potentially coming back again now uh, for many reasons. So uh, that's why it's really, uh, you know, a good moment to look at it again. But look, so why, why is it interesting? Um, so first of all, it's a, you know, the country has, a, has, a, has an enormous potential. So it's a big country. It's, it's like 84 million people. But Iran, plus all the neighboring countries, is more than 500 million people. And Iranian companies are well connected to those markets. Um, and, you know, those markets, even when you look at Iraq or Afghanistan, 
Now, they don't produce much, but they consume stuff. And most of the stuff they consume, they import from Iran. And you have 80 million people li living there. Then you have Turkey, um, 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 UAE, um, you know, up to Uzbekistan, uh, Pakistan, not far away, and so on. So um, it's a big market. Iranian companies um, have been under sanctions um, for, you know, pretty much 40 years, but really tough sanctions 20, 15 to 20 years. Um, so many of those companies um, produce, um, for example, exporters. They produce below their full capacity because they, they cannot export all of the, the products they could, all of the volumes that they could produce because of the sanctions. Now, those companies also cannot get fair pricing on their, uh, on their products because people don't want to buy Iranian products because it's either under, under sanctions or, um, or, or it's unclear, it's very complicated. So people prefer not to take risk. So Iranians have to entice people, right? Have to offer discounts and then have to figure out how to, you know, make the payment, arrange the insurance, yeah. um, logistics and so on. So their margins are well below what they should be. Their volumes are lower than, than they could be. So you, when you look at all the um, Iranian companies, especially exporters, their earnings are depressed and they will very quickly uh, grow when those restrictions are lifted. Now, um, on the other hand, when you look at the uh, domestic companies, you know, they've been a victim of uh, instability in, ma in the macroeconomy. So, um, you know, high inflation, um, households seeing their spending power going down, a lot of volatility in everything from the currency to, to inflation to, um, you know, the ability uh, to buy the technology, spare parts, machinery and so on. So all those companies are run um, just in case, just in case something bad is happening. So no one is planning ahead. Everyone is thinking like six months ahead. So there is no investment. Um, every company runs really um, um, big inventories just in case they cannot get hold of them when they need them. So um, also there, you know, when, when, when inflation stabilizes and inflation will stab stabilize when currency stabilizes. So what do you need? Okay, so first of all, when restrictions are lifted on Iran, then Iran is able to sell more oil, plus more petrochemical products and so on. So hard currency revenues go up. Um, and um, even now under sanctions, they tra their trade is balanced. So they will, they will have a trade surplus. So this will definitely stabilize the currency. This will stabilize inflation. Interest rates uh, should go down. They are around 21% at the moment. Um, um, there will be easier access to financing, bigger visibility into the future. Companies will uh, start investing. People will start borrowing money. Consumers will start borrowing money. Mortgages will appear. So, you know, there, there will be this whole uh, credit boom that will fuel um, additional growth in the economy. Um, now, what is um, what is interesting is that not only there is um, you know growth potential for uh, you know revenues of all, all those exporters. Aha, uh -huh, and sorry, <laughs> just go back. And Iran is a proper economy. It's not a, an, an an oil country like you know Saudi Arabia or Venezuela or w w whatever. Um, oil and gas is roughly fifteen percent of GDP. Uh, and the rest is, you know, well-diversified economy with services, manufacturing. They produce more than one million cars per year and so on. Um, so, it's a, so it's a healthy economy that has many engines um, of growth. 
but, but obviously all the natural resources will just help kickstart the growth. So um, there's plenty of room for, uh, for revenues to go higher for the local companies and profits to go higher. But what is, what is very unique for a country like this that is opening up, going through some transformation, is um, that you have well-functioning um, capital markets. So you have a stock market, you know, with 600 companies on it, um, with, um, um, you know, 50 different industries listed. So it's not, a, again, proxy on, on, on oil price. And um, there are no foreigners involved. Like all the foreigners are less than 0.5% of the market cap. The market cap is roughly $220 billion. It's trading around $200 million per day. And the valuations are around, you know, four to five times forward earnings. Um, yields are in high teens, you know, depending on the industry, could be, you know, anywhere between 10 and 20% um, uh, estimated uh, next year dividend yield. Um, and so, you know, this is the opportunity. The, the market is cheap, but it's not only cheap because of the valuations, it's, it's cheap because you're paying low multiple on depressed earnings. And you have a lot of drivers uh, a lot of catalysts for those earnings to uh, to start going higher. So for me, um, you know, looking at this and understanding that the bigger the biggest risk factor is obviously geopolitics and um, uh, uncertainty um, and about the nuclear deal, about the about the region, which is where you know it's always something happening there. Um, but on the other hand, I have very low valuations. The, the risk reward looks great because it has a lot of optionality. And the downside is, is is pretty limited. Sure. You've, when you're talking about valuations of five times or 20% yields, local currency yields, so real yields, uh, I don't know, I imagine they're probably about five or three or something in real terms. I don't know. I don't know what, what Iranian inflation is right now. Plenty of those companies that export stuff, that export, uh, you know, the mining or uh, petrochemical products, they have hard, hard currency, they have dollar revenue. But they are priced like the local companies, like domestic companies. You know, they are listed in Tehran, but they are essentially dollar assets that just happen to be listed in Tehran. And um, so you actually, in in many cases, get those high yields on dollar revenues. It's a bit different. Uh, I, I would I would quibble a little bit there because as the European Union and the United States have demonstrated with the government of Russia, all dollars live in New York whether you know it or not. So you might think you have dollars in Tehran, but your correspondent bank doesn't live in Tehran. Um, that said, I think, you know, I'm a sucker for frontier markets, four times earnings. I see the convexity you're talking about. You've definitely got a load of upside. How much downside you got? You can go to zero, but, you know, there's so much upside, it, it, it shouldn't be a problem. You just scale the trade appropriately. Um, point number one that I'd make is that I've always kind of assumed that as a US person, I may be British, but I'm a US person for legal purposes. Um, I can't touch Iranian investments unless I really want to want to get to know some other men very intimately. That's correct. So who are the investors in your fund? Because it ain't going to be me, given my love of liberty and intimacy with my wife. Everyone else. Non-US persons. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so Yank's not welcome. All right, point number one. And how about uh, Europeans? Is it really everybody else? I would have thought the Brits had sanctions that were pretty substantial against Iranian uh, part, uh, Iranian investments and stuff like that. No, the most, most substantial uh, sanctions are the US ones. And you have primary and secondary sanctions. 
primary sanctions are pretty clear. I mean, U.S. persons cannot touch Iran, and that's it, right? Yeah. And secondary sanctions talk about everyone else, like Europeans, Brits, you know, Asian, whoever, um, and say that everyone else shouldn't be, for example, trading physical oil or doing business with entities on the on the sanctions list. And there is a lot of entities on those sanctions list. So our life is actually much harder because, because of the U.S. Uh, secondary sanctions, because we need to be compliant. I mean, we want to, we, we, we need to be compliant with all the sanctions, including U.S. sanctions, uh, which means that we cannot touch many of the biggest companies listed on, in, in Tehran. Because they have revolutionary guard connections or? Not only, because, look, the original sanctions list, like, prior to, to, to Trump administration was something like this. If some companies were really involved in, you know, revolutionary guards, uh, financing of terrorism, anything like this, then they were on the list. And it was clear you, you cannot touch them. Investing in their, in their shares listed on the stock market, I mean, trading, buying, selling on the secondary market is probably less of a problem, but just to be on the safe side, you don't touch it, right? Sure. But then with the 2018 um, wave of sanctions, Every big company in Iran was getting on the sanctions list just to make life harder, right? For exports, just to kill everything, right? In Iran, just just to apply as much maximum pressure. I think the phrase yeah, is maximum yeah. so pressure. That's, so that's the effect of maximum pressure that our investment universe shrank <laughs> big time. So so we really have to be, uh, you know, go deeper, go into mid caps, go into I don't know. We are long um, fertilizer makers. So I thought you'd be long of pistachio makers. I thought you were going to be heavily invested in the pistachio industry. There are more interesting things. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. Um, forgive me. That's that's my bad idea of a joke. So, okay. So, what sectors do you have? You you were saying fertilizer, which makes perfect sense when you got that much natural gas. What else? Well, look. In general, the country is well positioned because it's long energy and long fertilizer, right? So, in in, in the current world, is, is is what you want. We, we we cannot invest in energy, but we 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 can get exposure to fertilizer. So urea makers, for example, fertilizer is energy. It's a, it's an embedded energy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you have um, pharmaceutical companies that are very interesting. Uh, we uh, we actually like within the broader pharmaceutical sector. Actually, like one company that produces. Um, um, the packaging, so the capsules um, for pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. uh, which is the almost monopoly in the country, is about to start um, exporting and, um, you know, again, um, priced at, um, you know, four times whatever, four and a half times forward PE, uh, where, you know, KKR was consolidating this um, this industry a couple of years ago at uh, you know 15 times a bit there right and then selling this to some Swiss um, um, company. Um, we have um, companies that do cleaning products and personal hygiene um, uh, products. There will be obvious takeover targets by you know Unilever Unilever in the future. Um, you have interesting. Um, um, some of the construction materials companies are interesting. So plenty of different stocks and, 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 and we have like exposure to um, eight, 10 different industries in Iran. So, you know, it's a great pitch. I do, I like the idea and I, you know, the arithmetic, we would, I, I just did a podcast with uh, someone who reminded me about Warren Buffett's dictums and Warren Buffett, if he could invest in this, would be all over you because this, this just fits what he likes uh, really well. In fact, what you need is an Iranian insurance company to offer him and back into it because that would be even better. Exactly. But um, 
But you're missing an important catalyst. Like stuff can stay cheap for a long time, even if you have great earnings. So a lot of this is about JCPOA. And that's your catalyst. That's the thing that could take your four to five or five to six times earnings companies and make them 15 to 20 times earnings companies, plus double or triple or quadruple earnings, God knows what, because earnings can absolutely fly. Or uh, or another thing that could happen, when you do have proper lifting of sanctions, the country is big enough to go straight to MSCI Emerging Market Index. It wouldn't happen quickly, sure. obviously, but it's probably big enough and liquid enough. And then when you have all the passive inflows, then you're going to have a bubble, right? And 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 it's not going to be, you know, 10 times earnings. It's going to shoot up to 30 times earnings. Sure. Just because there's a small door that people are trying to get through all at the same time. Suddenly, everyone, yeah. Okay. But the problem is that the politics don't, at the moment, it just doesn't, for whatever reason, it doesn't look like the JCPOA is going to get done anytime soon. I just read a Times of Israel article, never let anyone say I don't do any homework. I always do some homework, right? And the Times of Israel article said that the nuclear deal with Iran was off the table for the time being, the US has indicated to Israel. Israel is one of the countries that has an interest in this. So how optimistic are you that a JCPOA deal gets done? So I am optimistic. And um, there was a good chance um, for the deal to happen um, like two weeks ago. The, the negotiations were really advanced and, and it looked really positive. Now, what happened is that Iranians feel that they have a very strong, or at least relative to to history, strong um, negotiating position. So they say, look, we can help a lot, for example, Europe with our supplies of energy or, um, you know, urea methanol. Maybe they cannot export natural gas. They don't produce enough right now, um, but they can export a lot of other stuff from heating oil to, you know, gas oil to diesel and so on. And when you read some articles about what's happening in Europe, you see that, you know, in, in Germany, factories or data centers or other companies are just uh, um, increasing their inventory of diesel just, just in case if they have to keep going when, when you know, when the when natural gas uh, stops flowing right in in winter or the um, uh, su- supply is off um, so so Iran could help Iran understands this and Iran is not in a hurry uh, they think that actually in winter they can get a better deal because there will be maybe more desperation um, on the on, on on the European side interesting uh, or maybe the US will have less domestic constraints so so they they, start, they stand firmly with their negotiating position. Now, when Biden saw that, um, I think what happened is that decided they decided, look, um, we're not going to do it at any price because we have midterm elections uh, on uh, you know in nine weeks exactly. Um, the deal can go through, but then you know it's an easy, it's like a present, like a gift to the Republican Party that would start you know, challenging this, right? And it's a lot of criticism. Uh, it always pays off for politicians to be negative against uh, on Iran in the US. So they would definitely be doing this, right? And Democrats don't want that. Moreover, so 8th of November, you have midterm elections. One week before, you have snap elections in Israel. And in Israel, and that's exactly what the article that you read, I read the same article was about. It's uh, absolutely the beginning of the election campaign, right? So you have to be tough on Iran. You have to 
show that you actually can influence the U.S. administration, right? Because this is what conservative voters um, in Iran, in, in Israel want, right? Sure. So you have Lapid saying, we managed to kill the deal, right? So the Biden didn't, didn't sign the deal. And um, should Iran misbehave, um, he, he had this photo uh, with, with a fighter jet in the background, right? And saying, should, should Iran misbehave, you know, we will, um, they will feel the, feel the long arm of Israel or something like this, right? So this is absolutely election um, campaign stuff, right? And, and, and why is he choosing this rhetoric? Well, because he needs to keep the votes uh, of Likud, of Netanyahu, right? If, 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 if he wants to stay in power. And I think Biden actually would prefer uh, Lapid to stay in power. So, so he's probably happy to help. Um, then you have Russia, who is also at um, the negotiating table. And Russians probably also would like to see some delay um, um, of the deal because they want actually Europe to feel the, the effect, fully feel the effect of Russian sanctions on Europe, essentially, right? That they shut down gas flows, right? Counter-sanctions. Let's say counter-sanctions. Counter-sanctions, right? Counter-embargo, right? So so they're happy to to delay it until December. So Europe is obviously interested, right? But they're the only ones. Um, But at least Europeans don't have this um, political pressure because all the main countries um, are, you know, uh, in power. They don't have elections right now. So you have... The nearest election in the UK is 2024, in Germany 2025, in France 2027. So a bit less pressure there. So it all looks to me um, very, very politically driven. And, uh, you know, I had a chat ch- chat once with uh, a former um, um, secret- undersecretary, uh, US undersecretary, and he told me, look, always before US elections, the, the decisions, the rhetoric, it's always driven by election politics, um, and, and you should expect it. And I think it makes sense. So this is, I think, why the delay is happening. But I think the motivation is there to sign the deal. You don't want to have too many um, uh, crisis points at the same time. Ukraine is a big crisis uh, for Europe, for Biden. Um, Iran could be ticked off as, okay, we don't have the perfect deal, but at least it's under control. And we may actually try to integrate Iran, keep it somewhere between East and West and not just let it, you know, drift away completely towards, you know, the other alliance, for example. Uh, right. You mean East. <laughs> well, like Russia, China, whatever you define it. Right? Like, yeah, that, that's, the, that's the East, right? That's the, the multipolar world grouping that's, that's trying to emerge or whatever. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a strange grouping. I mean, China makes total sense that Iran has been getting closer to China for the last couple of years. I mean, since since um, 2018 and, and Trump sanctions, they didn't have a choice. you got you got to sell oil somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And China is a natural partner, right? They need everything that Iran is producing. And actually, Chinese companies are solving big problems of the Iranian companies. For example, Iranian um, car manufacturers, they had to rely on very old um, production lines um, from the European car makers like Renault, Peugeot, and so on. Yeah, it was mainly the French. Yeah, the French were yeah. uh, had set up both JVs. On the other hand, trucks are German, right? So uh, Daimler and so and, and sure. Volvo as well. And um, and then Chinese companies stepped in some time ago, 
and and they started producing Chinese cars as well. And the Chinese cars right now are you know decent decent quality uh, products. Newer production lines and cheaper as well. Absolutely, and and accessible, and that's the most important part. So 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 the the relationship with Chinese is is natural and and should grow. The relationship with Russia is 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 totally tactical. I mean. Iranians and, and Russians produce many of the same stuff, so they are competitors, right? Plus, there is a lot of um, mistrust. I mean, the Iranians remember that Soviet Union and, Union and before Russia uh, took part of their territory, they don't really trust uh, that much. And, and They're natural competitors in the Central Asian sphere. Um, one of the things I I looked at your slide pack and I, I was really struck by one of the maps you had. You, you used this map to say that there were 550 million potential customers for Iran because of the countries surrounding it. But when I looked at the map, I all I saw was the old maximum extent of the Iranian empire. Because um, you know it, it, that's what that map. You know, Turkmenistan, part of the Iranian Empire; Uzbekistan, part of the Iranian Empire at one point, uh, even as far as Afghanistan and beyond. So, um, th- and I thought to myself, you know what? There's a lot of this geopolitics. It, it's it's, it's geo- the geo stands for geography. The Russians and Iranians are natural competitors because they overlap. Those empires have always overlapped. So there's a problem there. But I did see. The, the Russians have some plan to introduce a new trade route, like the St. Petersburg to Bombay trade route where they go through Iran and you've got ships on the Caspian or something. So, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, there is a reason why they might be getting closer to each other for the in the short term. Look, not only Russians. I mean, this is booming in Iran. Shipping is one of the best sectors on the stock market. Unfortunately, we cannot get exposure to it because of sanctions. But um, it's not only Russians who want to ship through the Caspian Sea, then on land through Iran to get to the Persian Gulf or south, like ports like Bandar Abbas. Then you have very quick route to, to India, mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Indians, India can buy wheat, for example, from, from Russia if they want to, right? Yeah. Um, but, but also, you have United Arab Emirates, um, well, who are a close US ally, by, by the way, right? Yeah. They started using Iranian highways to move goods to Europe. So they it's cheaper for them and much faster and way cheaper um, than using um, the Suez Canal. It's cheaper for them to ship uh, goods to Iran, um, use Iranian trucks, um, Iran is just building um, railways, they don't have enough railways, but even right now using trucks, well, using also subsidized uh, diesel in Iran, take it to Turkey, through Turkey, you're in Europe, right? Greece and, and, and you're in Europe. Yeah. Um, so it's much cheaper. It's the same uh, for um, uh, South, uh, South Asian countries. So, so this is booming. Iran has a very good location uh, between Europe and Asia. Um, very important also for China on the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, so you have trains going from Tehran to, to Shanghai um, delivering goods much faster than the ship route. Um, one, one, one of the growth areas for the country, absolutely. You know what? That's the old Silk Route. It's the old Silk Road. It's yeah, a yeah, funny, funny thing to see it coming back. No, but it was, you know, it was ancient Persia. I mean, they were uh, building the first highways, right, for the caravans to, to move faster. I mean, they... Absolutely. In fact, so have you actually been to Iran? Have you visited? Come on. 
<laughs> I so I assume every, so. Of course. I go there every, we, we have an office there. I, I have full-time analysts there uh, that I speak on, you know, WhatsApp every day too. But I go there every three months. I would like to more often, but it's on average, it's every three months. Um, I enjoy going there very much. I visited many places in Iran. Obviously, I usually go to Tehran um, to, to meet people. But the country is fascinating. I mean, the people are great. You know, you have you have country that has really bad PR, right? So the expectations are low. You know, I have Iranian friends from long, long way back because, of course, there are Iranians everywhere. You go to California, there are places in LA which is Iranian towns, basically. And uh, in fact, now I think about it, Sarah, get in touch. You never call me. What's the matter with you? Um, but yeah, on my bucket list, I've got Tabriz, I've got Shiraz, I've got Susan, and I've got Persepolis. And I, I am determined to try and get to those places before I die because, you know, I mean, everyone's a historian, right? I would, I would add two places. I would add Isfahan and mountains. Go skiing. If you ski, snowboard, whatever, go to the mountains. I hear that you can see from the mountains, you can see the Caspian Sea in the distance when you ski in the north. I didn't. Maybe not from the, from the resorts I went to, but you are at 4,000 meters above sea level. You have great snow, very long season, not too many people. It's you know, the infrastructure is, is, is old. But it's, it's, it's a bit old, yeah. I've heard this. Um, there, there are problems when you're based in the US taking trips backwards and forwards between the US and Iran. It's, uh, it's something I want to wait until I, uh, I'm more retired. So, okay, so look, I've got, I've got a bigger counter-argument for you. It's a bigger threat to your investment thesis. And it's the same things which make Iran such a, such a potentially attractive market are the reasons why those sanctions are in place. Iran has, as you said, 84 million, a very young population. The young, by the way, is a great tragedy because they lost so many people in the Iran-Iraq war. So many young people as well. But of course, that's what happens with demographics. But they're young and they're well-educated. And the well-educated is key because they're just more better educated than almost any other Muslim country in the region. So for various other countries, Iran is a significant threat, particularly given the religious issues around Shiism and Sunni. Uh, there's lots of Sunni Arabs who are nervous about Iranian influence. There's uh, other countries like Israel that have identified Iran as a threat to its existence. I would argue that's why the sanctions are in place, to permanently cripple a potential threat to those countries. So I would argue it's harder than you think to get those sanctions unwound because you'll, as Iran grows and becomes powerful, it's exactly against the interests of certain other important states in the region like Saudi Arabia, like Israel. Dismantle that argument. You may be right that um, you know, these are the reasons for uh, real reasons of sanctions. I think that Iran would probably would have been better off without any oil because then all these countries wouldn't be so so much focused on on, on Iran and the, and the, and their biggest opportunity their best resource is the people as you said i mean it's 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 educated as in you know understand i mean the level of tertiary education people going to university is 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 like in in western europe right it's not like in american market. my tutor my second year in cambridge was uh uh, bah, uh hashim pesaran uh, his brother was at the Bank of England in the economics department, Bahram Pesaran. I, I'm friends with um, 
uh, Sasan Garamani, his brother used to run AI, uh, AI research for Uber. There are plenty of very well-educated Iranians. It's a very well-educated country. So the best university, uh, Sharif University in Iran, every year, a number of um, graduates go to MIT, right, to do their PhDs, even though it's really difficult for them to do it. Sure. Um, then, you know, it's and, and it's 30 years old, you know, the, the, the median age. Um, and then there is this package of, you know, 5,000 years of history and this strong awareness, um, rich culture and so on. So, so this is their biggest um, um, potential. And now... Um, also, think about the wages. I mean, the wages are lower than in Vietnam. I mean, people make $200 per, per month, right? You have computer scientists, uh, software engineers that can make, you know, $800 uh, per month, uh, while in Belarus, they make $5,000 per month, right? So um, this is a huge opportunity. Exactly like Eastern Europe in the 90s for the Germans, where, you know, the German companies started relocating their factories to take advantage of uh, cheap labor. And then in the meantime, you know, the, um, the, those consumers, this labor was getting richer and richer and became um, a middle class consumer market, right? So this will do so, but it's in bigger size, bigger scale. Um, so, so, so this is the opportunity. Now, you know, between Israel and Iran, you know, the governments obviously don't like each other. But when you talk to the people, there is no problem, no fundamental problem, right? You, the biggest Jewish diaspora in the region outside of Israel is in Iran. Yeah, the, Benj the tribe of Benjamin uh, and the Book of Esther, both uh, in inextricably linked to Iran or Persia, I should say. Yeah. So in the Iranian parliament, you have a guaranteed place for a Jew, a Christian and Zoroastrian so that those um, minority religions have their representation. I've been to many different churches, synagogues, you know, mosques, Zoroastrian churches. Everyone is doing his own thing and there is no like police standing in front of it. So it's a very open and tolerant uh, country. So there is no fundamental problem. So it's the governments that, that, that have to change. Um, also, you know, this demographic uh, profile, it's also similar in Saudi Arabia, for example. I mean, it, Saudis are even younger, 20 something is the median age. And I think that this demographic profile, I think this is the, the, the reason why those, um, the local governments have to change. So they have to adjust. Look, the majority of Iranians were born after the revolution. They can't really relate to, to those times, to those slogans, right? So I think those regimes, those governments also will have to adjust with the, to the, you know, new, new people, new demography, basically. Um, so I think it will be changing, but also look at the relations between Iran and the U.S. over the last, you know, 100 years, right? They, they, there, there has been many 180 degrees, uh, you know, shifts in those relations. Sure. From the biggest allies to, to, to the biggest, you know, enemies. Um, and Iran is the, is the most stable country in the region. I think long term, I would bet that it will be more stable than you know, for example, um, Saudi Arabia, where, where many things could, could, could change with the oil price and so on. Those things could change. But, but it's politics. So we, we don't know. I mean, we can just exchange arguments, but at the end of the day, we don't know, right? So just think about this, this scenario, this pessimistic scenario. So what's your downside, right? So think about a bad time for, for Iran. And the bad time for Iran is probably last 10 years. Yeah? 
So you had, over the last 10 years, you had, I think it covers also Ahmadinejad, that was a populist, populist president talking about removing Israel from the map. Then you had UN sanctions, US sanctions. Then you had Trump with uh, maximum pressure. You had two episodes of um, more than 80% currency devaluation. Really bad. Oh, and, and, and uh, all the time, this um, situation where, you know, people think that you're about to have war with someone in the region, right? Maybe Israel, maybe Saudis, maybe US will get involved. Who knows, right? So a lot of uncertainty. So now look at the stock market. What did the stock market do, right, in terms of performance over the last 10 years? So the, the, the um, average annual return, compounded return, in dollar terms, using the bazaar rate, the, the volatile one in Iran, from Iranian stocks, last 10 years, is 15% per year, 1.5. The US market, S&P 500, total return, enjoying technology boom, right? Amazons, Apples, you know, mega caps, uh, interest rates going to zero, um, very long economic expansion and so on, average something like 13% per year. So it, obviously it doesn't make sense to you know, compare this one to the other one, but just to show you, um, you, you, you know, the, the, the returns that you can get in bad times, actually, and, and one of the reasons for this is that you were buying cheap assets that are paying actually very high dividend yields. The payout ratio is very high. The second thing is that many of uh, those earnings are maybe not in hard currency, as you said, that all the dollars are at the end of the day in New York, whatever, but they're linked to hard currency. So they can get it in real, in the yuan or whatever, but priced against benchmark in USD, right? Some, some sure. regional. Sure. Um, which means that uh, whenever the local currency uh, is crushing, the Iranian real, whenever it's crushing, well, it's not great for a foreign investor because you see a pretty uh, nasty drawdown. But then this is an automatic uh, you know, impulse uh, for earnings growth uh, for many of the companies listed on the stock market. And they, because they allow the currency to, to, to crash, uh, they don't have a choice probably, um, then keeps the, the economy very competitive. Uh, and, you know, it's great for, for exports. So if you look at the last 10 years, um, obviously. Yeah, they're suppressing domestic wages effectively. Yes, it is. So, so, so households are getting screwed, right? They, they are the biggest victims of the inflation, of the currency depreciation, of sanctions, essentially. Um, but many of the manufacturing uh, companies had the biggest earnings growth in, you know, ever, um, actually under Trump. It was amazing. Um, so, so, so the stock market actually under Trump administration um, roughly doubled in, in dollar terms, even though the currency crushed, you know, went down by roughly 80% during that time. Yeah. So one of the great paradoxes of these kind of trades is, you know, they say that it's darkest before the dawn. The whole rationale for the sanctions regime, if you ask me, apart from preventing the Iranian economy from being strong, keeping it weak, is the, the, this kind of wishful thinking that there'll be some kind of regime change. And, you know, I think it's I think it's silly. I think if you wanted regime change in Iran, take away the sanctions regime, because it's only the external pressure, which is stopping the Iranian people saying, you know what, we're sick of the Islamic revolution, <laughs> enough of the Islamic revolution already, let's just move on. 
Because I, I, you know, I've heard the best parties in the world are the ones you you, you get you go to in Tehran. I haven't been to one, but I hear they're really wild. So it is possible if it, you know, there's an opportunity here where hydrocarbons are important for Europe, and everyone's getting crushed because of the you know, you can't have a situation where Russia, Iran, and Venezuela are all excluded from global hydrocarbon markets because all it does is create two markets, one for people who can access those hydrocarbons, like China or India, and then they make God knows how much money out of out of that, while we can only access hydrocarbons from permitted Gulf states or North America. So yeah, so that if if that persistent situation persists, we will suffer in the West. Uh, this is this opportunity now for that situation to break down. We open it up. It won't change how much hydrocarbons they are anytime soon because all of the Iranian hydrocarbons are leaving the country and going to China. No, they will increase the production. Uh, so they are right now exporting something like 800,000, 900,000 barrels per day to China. Um, they can probably go quickly, uh, increase quickly by 1.5 million. Uh, 1 to 1.5 million, then in three years' time with some investment, they can do more up to... Absolutely. I didn't realize they had that much capacity they were underproducing. I'm not sure why they do that. I suppose, I don't know, maybe they hope. I would have thought they were producing at the maximum amount now, because why wouldn't you? Well, because China is a new thing. Look, two years ago, China was not buying anything. Uh, So China started buying, like like last year, really, in, in, in big sizes. Um, initially, you could see this um, in the in the trade numbers between China and Malaysia. Suddenly, Malaysia started exporting a lot of oil because obviously it was all the Iranian oil getting right. um, re- repackaged um, as Malaysian and so on. Um, but then, so and, and and before they were not doing this. So and you know that's why there is actually quite a lot of stability when you look at the uh, economic you know numbers in in Iran over the last eighteen months. But I I visited Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan, a few years back, and it was obvious that Iraqi Kurdistan was running on Iranian oil, like that they were exporting that oil. And that route was to Turkey. So that oil was going from Iran into Kurdistan via the Barzanis and then into Turkey. Iranian oil must have been escaping before, otherwise the country would have collapsed. So I, I, I find it hard to believe there's going to be a huge bump in global hydrocarbons if we let the Iranians through. I got money already in Venezuela because I told you earlier I was dumb, right? What, what did you buy? Which assets class? I, I've got a, a real estate fund based, uh, private equity type thing. It's a closed end thing. A real estate fund run by a Venezuelan Jewish guy. Of course, we all hang out together. You know how it is. <laughs> he tells me we can get like five, six percent uh, yields, cap rates on this stuff. We'll see, right? Um, but we're buying buildings at very good prices, way below replacement rates. Same argument. You know the situation. And real estate, it's an index to the economy. It's not really a, a play on its own. You're hoping the economy does well in Caracas. The, the, the only risk with real estate is that it's an easy target for the government, right? I mean, they can tax Well, right. absolutely. But the same, I was going to say that to you. Um, you know, if you're a foreign investor, you must have some friends somewhere with the authorities. And I'm sure that someone somewhere's had a meeting with you and they've blessed you and said, you know, you're doing God's work, probably quite literally in your case, you're doing God's work because it's an Islamic regime. But um, do you have the kind of, if, if you do too well, won't you attract unwanted interest from, from, other, from other power centers in Iran? Well, if we are, you know, more than a 
billion dollar AUM, probably yes, right? Uh, I mean, in many markets, you would probably someone might not knock on your door and suggest that you buy bonds of this wonderful company or whatever, right? So um, anyway, no, we, I don't have any friends. Uh, no one approached me, at least not officially. Um, and we, um, I got a lot of help and very positive, good attitude from, from the institutions um, in, in Iran especially from uh, this um, uh, security, Securities and Exchange Organization, so the market regulator that have been helping us with all the required licenses. We act as, a, as an official foreign institutional investor, and we are the only ones, you know, the only foreign institutional investor investing on the stock market. So I guess it's important for the, for the country as well to have, you know, more and more. So if we, if we are successful uh, and we go back, you know, to Europe or to the West and, talk about this, that we, you know, made so much money, we have such a good experience and so on. This should attract more money, more inflows, which the country country badly needs, right? So yeah. I think it, it makes more sense um, to to just, you know, let us work to our job. Um, no, but, you know, my, my experience has been very positive. We also have all the guarantees that, you know, big foreign Western uh, companies that operate in Iran uh, have been there for the last 20 years. Um, they they have those government guarantees that say that the government will not expropriate your assets, that you should, in theory, have uh, the ability to buy hard currency directly from the central bank if you cannot access it on, on, on the market. So, you know, when they offered this, um, I said, you know, obviously I'll have it, please. But what if the next government, you know, they change their mind and they will no longer like the, like the guarantee. So they make a good point because they introduced this guarantee uh, before the revolution. So I think in the 60s, so under the Shah government, right? And they kept it through the regime change so that, you know, people uh, can, you know, feel that they can rely on it. So, um, so, so yeah, so, so, so we have a very formal official setup and um, also with, you know, sanctions advisors in Washington just telling us what we can do, what we cannot do. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's a very uh, difficult country to operate in. So you have to be super careful just um, if you want to, you know, stay compliant with both domestic and international, you know, uh, constraints and restrictions. Yeah, ab absolutely. I can imagine. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I would go on, but... Uh, other people have ironing to do or, you know, washing their children or something, God, God knows. Um, so we should probably call it quits. Where should where would people get hold of more material on your business and, and, and Iran or just your thoughts generally? Where should they look? Well, so uh, email us. You can find the email address on our website, which is amtelloncapital.com. Um, I'm happy to put, um, you know, everyone on our mailing list. We we send like quarterly market updates, uh, plus whenever something interesting is going on. I I also I'm also on Twitter, not as active as I would like to be, uh, but you can try it there as well. Excellent. Well, that was a great pleasure. Hopefully, we can do it again. Great. Thank you so much. All right, that's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.